Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Ladder for supporting today's podcast. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance without leaving your home. Just go to ladder.com slash gold today to see if you're instantly approved. Well, yesterday morning, we got the release of the June Consumer Price Index. And this was a highly anticipated release, as is every monthly CPI number, because the markets are waiting for some type of confirmation that the assurances by the Fed and by just about everybody else that inflation is transitory are legitimate. And so everybody is looking for the end of the transitionary period. They want to see these monthly CPI numbers drop back down to the same 0.1 or 0 numbers that we used to get routinely before the COVID period. So that's what everybody wants, confirmation of the transitory nature of the really bad numbers that have been coming out. And in fact, the first five numbers that we got for the first five months of the year 2021, every single number was hotter than estimates, meaning that each monthly's increase was a bigger increase than what everybody had expected. And in fact, the numbers have been so bad that even the Federal Reserve was forced to admit that even though they still believe that inflation is transitory, the transitory inflation that we have is actually more than they thought. So the numbers are bigger than what the Fed had estimated, and they've even been forced to acknowledge that the length of the transitory period is going to be longer than they originally thought, but they're still clinging to their forecast that it is transitory, even if the bump in inflation is higher than they thought and the length of the transition is longer than they thought, they're still confident that they're right about the transitory nature of what we're experiencing. And just to kind of refresh everybody's memory for the CPI numbers that we've had thus far in 2021, we were up 0.3% in January. And so far, that's the low point for the year because every month has been higher than that. February was 0.4, March was 0.6, and April was 0.8. So up until April, the trend had been every month was bigger than the month before. And in fact, even January was bigger than December of 2020, which was up 0.2. So we had one, two, three, four, five months in a row of increasing numbers. And of course, each number was bigger than what had been forecasted. So last month, we got the number for May. 
and May came out at 0.6. So that was the first monthly drop from the prior month, but that 0.6% was still higher than what had been forecast. Now, maybe a break from the uptrend lulled some people into a false sense of confidence that maybe April was the peak and now we're going to start going down. It's a new downtrend. Well, if you remember in my podcast that immediately followed the release of the main number, my feeling was, no, this was not an end of the cycle, that the numbers would continue to get bigger. It was that we were not going to have a bigger number each and every month. It was more likely that we would have maybe one step backwards before we had two steps forward. And of course, 0.6% gain following a 0.8% gain is still a big number. Even if it wasn't sequentially higher than the number that preceded it, it was still a big number that exceeded expectations and it's still cumulative. You have to add that increase to the increases that preceded it. So we were still printing some pretty big numbers that gave no indication whatsoever that anything that we were seeing was transitory. So people were hopeful that we would maybe get a little bit of a break, although there wasn't that much optimism because if you look at the forecast for the CPI increase for June, it was 0.5. And I think that's about the biggest estimate that I've seen coming into a number. So I think all of these months of hotter than expected numbers where everybody was missing on the low side, that caused some people to up their forecasts. So people were expecting 0.5, which still would have been a little bit of a decline from the preceding month. So the expectation was that trend would continue. Well, once again, the expectations were confounded by the data and by reality because prices ended up rising by 0.9% for the month. So this not only beat the estimate, but it beat the high end of the range of the estimates, which went from a low of 0.4 to a high of 0.6. So 50% above the high end of the estimate, almost double the actual estimate. It was the hottest month of the year. So no indication that the transitory period is coming to an end when we just hit a new high for month-over-month CPI increases in the most recent month of June. In fact, the June number in and of itself is so big that it is the biggest monthly gain in the CPI in 13 years. You got to go back to mid-2008, summer of 2008, to see a spike that high. But of course, this was just before the 2008 financial crisis sent commodity prices crashing, oil prices crashing, the dollar spiraling. So that's what saved us from inflation running out of control. We caught a break and had the 2008 financial crisis. Now, I don't think we're going to get that lucky again. We don't have a repeat of that crisis around the corner. Meanwhile, if you look at where commodities are in the cycle, you look at where oil in particular is, we're not even close to where we were summer of 2008. We have so much more upside. And also in the summer of 2008, the U.S. dollar was at an all-time record low. And so a rally was overdue from that extreme oversold situation and an all-time record low. Well, right now, the dollar index is well above where it was in the summer of 08, and it still has a long way to fall to get back down to those levels. So in other words, we're not nearing the end of an inflation period. We're just at the beginning of a much bigger inflationary period, despite the fact that the numbers are already so big. In fact, if you look at the core rate, the year-over-year rate was up 4.5%. That was the biggest year-over-year rise in 30 years. And on a monthly basis, core CPI came out at up 0.9, matching the headline number. And again, almost double the estimate of 0.5%. The range for the core, which excludes food and energy, was up anywhere from 0.3 to 0.5. And again, we're up 0.9. The year-over-year 
headline increase, which was expected to come in at 5%, that came in at up 5.4%. I'm not sure the last time we had a year-over-year rise that big, but I did do a little research on goods prices because one of the reasons that the CPI isn't even worse is because the gain in service prices is not as bad as the gain in goods prices because more and more of the goods are imported and therefore they're being hit even harder uh, by a lot of these inflationary factors. Goods prices year over year are up 8.7%. That is the biggest gain in 40 years. I was in high school. It was 1981. That's the year I graduated high school. You got to go all the way back to my high school graduation year to find a year-over-year gain in good prices as high as the one that we just printed last month. But again, there is no end in sight that would suggest that what we are seeing is about to stop. You have to really go back to the 1970s to see this type of inflation data. But even that comparison to the 1970s is really flawed and hard to make given the dramatic changes that have occurred since then in the computation of the CPI. And I've talked about this on many occasions over my podcast, but when you hear people talking about the inflation we have now and comparing that to the double-digit inflation that we had during the 1970s as if it's still not that bad, It is that bad. In fact, it may even be worse. Look, even if you take the government's numbers, right, the numbers that we already have year to date, for the first six months of the year, consumer prices are up 3.7%. That's almost double the 2% target that we're supposed to have an entire year, and we did it in six months. If you annualize the first six months of the year and just assume that we have another six months that is identical to the first six months, that's going to give you a 7.5% increase in consumer prices for 2021. That is pretty big. I mean, maybe it's not double digit, but it's not too far away. But also, one of the factors that really should be of a major concern is that the owner's equivalent rent, which is, I think, a full third of the CPI, owner's equivalent rent is not up that much. Yeah, it was up 0.3% month over month, but on a year-over-year basis, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think it's maybe 2 to 3% is what is being counted as owner's equivalent rent, which is the biggest component of housing, which is really the biggest part of the CPI. But if you actually look at what's happening to housing prices and rents, those prices are going up a lot more than this owner's equivalent rent, which is a fantasy number. It's a make-believe number that nobody actually pays. So the single biggest component of the CPI is a price that not a single person in the country actually pays. It's a made-up number where the government asks people who own homes and live in their own homes rent-free what they would charge themselves if they were renting their house, right? And they have to guess like what would be a fair rent for their house. Well, imagine where the CPI would be right now if instead of using this made-up number that nobody actually pays, what if they used real rents that people were paying? Or what if they actually used the price of a house that people were buying? What if home prices were a component of the CPI? Imagine how much hotter the number would be. But also, what if in the second half of the year, owner's equivalent rent spikes up? Because maybe the people who own houses start to realize that if they did rent out their house, it would be for a much higher price than they were thinking you know, a year earlier. Maybe you're going to see some catch up in the owner's equivalent rent in the second half of the year uh, to kind of get closer to what's going on in the real world with rent and prices. So the second half of the year could be quite a bit hotter than the first half of the year. Also, I've mentioned this before, But I think a lot of companies have been reluctant to pass on these higher costs. Now, some of the companies have found ways to 
get the customer to spend more money without actually officially raising prices. I talked about that on an earlier podcast where restaurants are requiring minimums now per person. If you come to the restaurant, you have to spend a minimum amount of money. And if you don't, they're just going to add the difference between what you spent and that minimum to your check. I don't think that shows up at all in the CPI because it's not a menu item that was increased. It's a brand new charge that never existed before. So I don't think that kind of stuff even makes it into the CPI. But also I've been reading a lot more about shrinkflation, which is a cute name for what happens when a business is, instead of raising prices or in addition to raising prices, maybe they don't raise them as much, they reduce the quantity of what you're buying so that you don't notice the price increase as much. And that's really a marketing gimmick because obviously if I'm selling products, I don't want to piss off my customers with a price increase. So if I can slip one through that they don't notice, well, then maybe I have a better chance of holding on to my market share. And that's happening. I mean, one of the uh, big examples of that is a roll of toilet paper because it's very easy to take some of the sheets off of the roll. Maybe you take 20 sheets away, 30 sheets away. And so, you know, there's so many sheets there, who's really going to know? But gradually, these rolls of toilet paper keep getting skinnier and skinnier. And, you know, but there's a point where you have to stop. I mean, they can't get down to the point where they're selling toilet paper by the sheet. I mean, that would be ridiculous. And also, there's a point where the packaging costs become too big a factor. Like you can look at cereal boxes. They're notorious. They keep on reducing the amount of cereal in the box. In fact, I read an article just recently that one of these companies, at the same time, they actually put fewer flakes of cereal in the box. They actually had the nerve to make the box a little bit bigger. So they made the box taller, but they put even fewer cereal flakes inside this larger box you know, really trying to fool the consumer. But there's a limit. I mean, you can't have this gigantic box with like one serving of cereal in it because you get into the point where the cardboard in the box and all the other materials to make the box becomes too big a cost component for the cereal. I mean, you need to spread out the cost of the packaging with the content. So at some point, you know, companies, they run out of wiggle room to do that and they have to just increase prices. And I'm not really sure how much of this shrinkflation makes it into this highly manipulated CPI. But I still think that a lot of businesses were kind of holding off on price increases. They don't really like to roll them out. And if they believed what the Fed was saying about all this transitory increases, they're willing to absorb some of their costs that were going up, thinking, okay, we'll just you know take a little bit of a hit Uh, but it's temporary. Prices will come right back down. So rather than raising our prices and then lowering them, we'll just keep them where they are, or maybe we'll raise them a little bit, not really as much, uh, because we'll make it up in the future when prices fall. But when the companies finally throw in the towel on holding off on really passing on these price increases, because now they realize that it's not transitory. These are permanent increases. In fact, they're likely to get even bigger in the future than they've been in the past. I think there's a lot of incentive for second half price hikes. So it is certainly possible that we can finish 2021 with 10% CPI, you know, which would rank it as bad as any of the years that we had during the 1970s, except 10% in 2021 is not 10% in 1971 or 1979, because this is not your grandfather's CPI. This is a completely different CPI that is completely rigged and reverse engineered. If we actually have 10% inflation, if we measured prices the way we did back in the 1970s, it'd probably be 15 or maybe 20% inflation. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. 
Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The flip side is that if they measured inflation in the 1970s the way we're measuring it now, we wouldn't have had double-digit inflation in the 1970s. It probably would have been lower than what we're experiencing right now. The reality is what's actually going on in the cost of living. Americans are now enduring a rising cost of living where prices are rising at least as fast as they were during the worst part of the 1970s, only we could get a lot worse because the underlying fundamentals are much worse today than they were back then. And the ability of the Federal Reserve to do something about inflation is substantially reduced from the position that we were in back in the days of Paul Volcker and Ronald Reagan. And that's the one thing that the markets still don't seem to appreciate. Because again, if you look at the reaction to these much hotter than expected inflation numbers. The reaction that everybody would naturally expect to follow if inflation is worse than you thought, right? If the dollar is losing purchasing power faster than you thought, the knee-jerk reaction that would make logical sense given those facts is that, oh, you would sell your dollars, right? Oh, the dollars are losing value faster than you thought. There's more inflation than you expected. So get rid of your dollars, right? You want to sell dollars. Oh, and you want to buy gold. Gold is an inflation hedge. Well, there's more inflation than you thought. So there's even greater need of a hedge than there was before. So investors should be willing to pay even more for an ounce of gold when there's even more inflation than they expected, right? So that's what you would assume gold would go up, the dollar would go down, but the reverse happened. Almost immediately, as soon as the number came out, worse than expected, gold sold off about 10 bucks immediately. I mean, instantaneously. It went from about up eight bucks because gold was a little higher before the number, and then it went down about two bucks. I mean, not a huge move in the scheme of things, but the point is, what traders did. How did they react to this worse than expected news on inflation? They sold an inflation hedge. At the same time, they went in and bought dollars. The dollar index was around flat and it spiked up to around plus 0.4, plus 0.5 immediately. All the traders wanted to buy the very currency that was losing value much faster than everybody thought. The opposite of what you would expect unless you, again, understand the dynamic here, and I've explained it on this podcast before, it has to do with what traders expect the Fed to do in reaction to these numbers. Because everybody believes the Fed is honest in their view that inflation is transitory, to the extent that there is evidence that suggests that it's not transitory, the markets expect the Fed to change its policy and to adopt a tighter monetary policy in response to this unexpected pickup in inflation, some evidence that maybe it's not transitory. And so the Fed is then going to raise rates sooner than the markets expect. It's going to taper its asset purchase program sooner than the markets expect. So this corresponds to tighter monetary policy. Well, what does tighter monetary policy mean to currency traders? It means you buy the dollar, right? That's what they program into their algorithms. Hey, if data comes out that's stronger than expected, that may lead to a tighter Fed, well, then we want to buy the dollar because the dollar benefits from higher interest rates. That is the data going into these programs. The same thing with gold. Anything that would make the Fed Tighten policy is a negative for gold. So you see higher than expected inflation 
aha, that means the Fed is going to be tighter than we thought, and that's negative for gold, so we have to sell it. But this is a crazy way to look at things because people are looking at these events in isolation and not really extrapolating or looking at the big picture as to whether or not it's even possible for the Fed to do this, which it is not. That is why I've said that the Federal Reserve does not actually think inflation is transitory. I think it knows that it's not transitory. It just knows not to admit that because it also knows that it can't do anything about it. So the Fed is not going to be surprised by these bad numbers. I think it expects them. The market is going to be surprised when the Fed does nothing about it, when the Fed has to come up with another way to justify and make excuses for why they're not doing anything because they can't. If the Fed could actually do something about inflation, they would have already done it. If they could have nipped it in the bud, they would have done it. The reason they haven't done it is because they can't. And because they can't fight inflation, that's why they have to pretend that it's transitory. Because if they could fight it, now is the time to do it. Don't wait for it to get bigger. Don't wait for inflation to get stronger to try to take it on. You want to nip it in the bud while it's still a little baby, right? When it gets to be this gigantic monster, which is where it's going to be. I mean, think about how high inflation will actually be by the time the Fed finally admits that it's not transitory. And then by the time the Fed actually raises rates to do something about it, because the Fed has already said that they're not going to surprise the markets with a rate hike to the point that they decide that there's going to be a rate hike. They're going to give us plenty of advance warning. In fact, they're not even going to taper their asset purchases until they've given us enough time in advance to prepare for it. So A, you have to have all these inflation numbers come out month after month after month to the point where the Fed says, okay, we were wrong. Inflation is not transitory. It's here to stay and it's going to get worse. But now they have to wait even longer before they do something about it because before they do something about it, they have to tell us in advance that they're going to do something about it to give everybody a chance to prepare for it. So by the time they actually get around to implementing the tightening policies that they've prepared us for, where is inflation going to be? You know, if it's already almost 10% a year, I mean, it could be 15%, 20% a year by the time the Fed gets around to raising interest rates to fight it. Now, if the Fed is still at zero, right, and you've got 10% inflation, let alone 20% inflation, what are you going to do? I mean, does it matter to inflation if you go from 0% to a half a percent or 1%? No, it doesn't matter at all. Does it matter to the markets? If inflation is 10% and you're at zero, real rates are negative 10%. Does it matter to the price of gold if real rates go from negative 10 to negative 9? Doesn't matter at all. And are you going to slow down 10% inflation with negative 9% real interest rates? You're not even going to come close. Look, the only way you could really slow down 10% inflation is to get out in front of it. If you have to make real yields positive. In a world where inflation is 10%, where do nominal rates have to go? 12%, something like that? Well, there is no way that the Fed could get anywhere near there given the level of debt, given the short-term nature of all the debt and how when interest rates go up, it doesn't just impact the money we're borrowing today, but it impacts all the money we've borrowed in the past because all that debt keeps rolling over and now we have to refinance it at this new higher rate, which nobody can afford. So the Fed is all bark and no bite when it comes to inflation. So why don't traders understand this? They keep thinking, oh, the Fed is going to raise rates every time inflation is worse than expected. Well, we've now had six consecutive months of inflation being worse than expected. The Fed hasn't done anything about it. The Fed is continuing to print money. It's continuing QE. Hasn't tapered anything. Hasn't done anything. You know, it's like the boy who cries wolf. I mean, the the Fed keeps crying wolf. And all the villagers, you know, the bond traders and the gold traders, they keep on running. And it hasn't even occurred to them that every time they've done this, it's been wrong because the Fed has never reacted to this hotter than expected numbers. And it never will because it can't. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance. Before, if you wanted to get life insurance, you had to drive across town. You had to sit through a sales pitch. 
fill out a ton of paperwork, and then wait six to eight weeks to find out if you've been approved. And even worse, the sales pitch that you're going to get is going to be for whole life, when generally the last thing you need when you want to buy life insurance is whole life. That's the first thing the salesman needs because he makes a big commission, but it's not in the interest of somebody who really wants insurance. If you're trying to get insurance, the goal is to maximize the size of the death benefit and to spend as little as possible on the premiums. Then you can invest your savings in legitimate investments. You don't want to get talked into believing that insurance is an investment when it's not. Insurance is insurance and investing is a whole different animal. But now with Ladder, you can get life insurance without leaving your home. When you apply for up to $3 million of coverage, it's all taken care of digitally. There's no doctors, no needles, and no paperwork. If you're between the ages of 20 and 60 and you're looking for term life insurance coverage, Ladder makes it quick and easy. So just go to ladderlife.com slash goal today to see if you're instantly approved. That's ladderlife.com slash gold, L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash gold to see if you're instantly approved. And of course, I was also watching the coverage on you know CNBC in particular because these guys are big defenders of the Fed. They love everything about the Fed, which of course is ironic because they also love everything about Bitcoin, right? So at the same time that they think the Fed is great and can do no wrong, they also think Bitcoin is great and everybody should own it to the point that any guest that comes on CNBC has to be asked their opinion about Bitcoin, regardless of the purpose of the interview, there's going to be a Bitcoin question. So they love Bitcoin and they love the Fed. So they are assuming that inflation is transitory, even though they think everybody should own Bitcoin under the theory that it's not transitory, because that's what all the Bitcoin proponents are saying who come on their air. But I'm looking for how CNBC is responding to this. And again, as far as they're concerned, Nothing has changed. There's no problem. They did have this one guest on, Jeremy Siegel, who, to give him some credit, he at least has been out there consistently talking about inflation being worse than everybody thinks and worse than the Fed expects. And so he's got that right. But where Jeremy Siegel has it wrong is the Fed's ability or willingness and ability to actually fight inflation, which he expects to happen, which is why he thinks eventually it's going to be bad for the stock market because he believes the Fed is going to be forced to uh, acknowledge that inflation is worse than they thought, and then they're going to take action to rein it in, and so that action is going to be a big headwind for the markets. But until that happens... He expects the markets to keep going up because there's no other game in town. You've got inflation. You can't buy bonds because bonds are going to get killed. And so he still thinks that stocks represent the best inflation hedge. And that seems to be the theme that almost every guest on that network is stressing that, hey, it doesn't even matter about inflation, even if inflation is a lot worse than we think. Stocks are the best inflation hedge. So even if the Fed is wrong and we have an inflation problem, the solution is to buy stocks because stocks are the best inflation hedge and history has proved that stocks are the best inflation hedge, except that's not the case. You see what the people on CNBC just don't understand is that when you're looking at today's valuations, when you're looking at record high stock prices in a bubble, and then you're looking backwards, yeah, stocks outperform everything. Stocks are the answer to everything when you're staring backwards from the peak of a mountain, when you've got this big bubble. But whether or not stocks are a good inflation hedge over a shorter time period, a lot of that depends on what price you pay for those stocks. So if you are overpaying for stocks, like you're doing now, if you're paying very high multiples for your stocks, they may not be a good inflation hedge at all because multiples can easily contract during an inflationary environment, which I think they will do. I think the U.S. stock market is not going to be a good inflation hedge in aggregate, like buying the indexes, because those indexes are dominated by overpriced companies that actually did very well when inflation wasn't a problem. I mean, the only inflation there was was in the financial market. So as inflation pushed up stock prices, that was good. 
But as inflation moves out of stocks and into real stuff, commodities, consumer goods, those assets are going to deflate. So they are not going to be the good inflation hedge. There will be some stocks that will be a good inflation hedge. Stocks that are not overpriced, value stocks, stocks that pay good dividends, stocks that have real pricing power where they can raise their prices and then increase their dividends and act as an inflation hedge. This is particularly true when it comes to non-U.S. stocks where their earnings will be in currencies that will go way up in relation to the dollar. So if you want to use equities as a hedge against inflation, forget about domestic stocks. They're not your hedge. It's foreign stocks. That's why I have been telling people all of these years to invest so heavily in foreign stocks. I'm suggesting it as an inflation hedge because these stocks are real assets and those real assets will gain in value in an inflationary time period, especially though if they're foreign assets and you're measuring them by a shrinking dollar. But you know what a lot of other people don't seem to get when it comes to inflation and how it impacts stocks. One of the main ways that stocks benefit from inflation is because the debt that they have on their balance sheet gets wiped out. Because most companies, their capital structure includes equity that the common shareholders have and debt that the bondholders have. Well, if there's a lot of inflation, the bondholders get screwed and their equity is really transferred to the common stockholders who get to repay that debt with inflated money. So if you own stock in a company that has good earnings and can raise their prices during an inflationary period, and then it's easier to repay their debt, that is a good hedge against inflation because you benefit as a debtor. You own stock in a company And now more of the real value of that company as a result of inflation gets transferred from the creditors, the bondholders, to the common stockholders. Well, there are a lot of these high PE, uh, high multiple tech stocks. They don't really have any debt. I mean, they were able to get a lot of cash by selling stock. I mean, why borrow money when you can just sell stock at such inflated values? I mean, some of these companies are still sitting on a lot of cash because they have huge PEs. These things are going to implode as inflation moves higher. But also, you have to look at margins. And a lot of people who are on CNBC were saying, hey, stocks are inflation hedges because they can raise their prices. And so that's your inflation hedge. Yeah, companies will raise their prices. But you have to remember that demand for products is affected by price. As you raise your prices, you may find that some of your customers reduce the amount of stuff they buy from you, or they may not buy anything at all. See, what is going to happen is as prices go up, the price of certain things will go up more than the price of other things. But because people don't have an unlimited budget, they will continue to buy food, even if food is a lot more expensive. They have to continue to pay their rent, even if it's a lot more expensive. They have to continue to pay their electric bill. They have to continue to buy gas. The necessities of life that get more and more expensive, it's not that easy to cut back on those. Where a lot of people are going to be cutting back is on discretionary spending. The stuff they buy with the money that's left over after they finish paying for all the things they need, then they buy the stuff that they want. Well, if the stuff that they need takes up all their money because prices have gone up, well, they can't buy any of the stuff that they want. So the people who sell that stuff, the companies that are selling items that are discretionary purchases, They think they could just raise their prices. They can't. They may not even be able to sell their goods even if they keep their prices the same, even if they cut their prices. So just because there's inflation doesn't mean you can raise your prices and still maintain your profitability. And also, I think for a lot of companies, the cost of their inputs is going to be rising more than what they're able to charge their customers. Yes, some companies will be able to fully recoup their higher costs. And again, those are the companies that are selling consumers items that they need and that they have to buy them. And if the price goes up, well, they just have to cut back on some other form of spending to afford it. But if you are selling these discretionary items and your cost of producing those items and distributing those items is going up, you may not be able to fully offset those increases with 
price increases without really eating into your sales and ultimately making less money. So I think what a lot of these companies are going to have to do in response to a rising cost structure is they're going to have to find a way to reduce their overall capacity to have a much smaller footprint so they can figure out how to be profitable with fewer sales. So in other words, they they reverse all their growth, right? Instead of trying to grow the business, they're trying to figure out how to shrink the business so it can survive with fewer customers who pay higher prices. But when you have a smaller company selling fewer goods, you don't need as many employees. So now you start having layoffs. So this is where you're going to get the big stagflationary problem where we're going to be dealing with rising prices and increasing unemployment at the same time. And then what is the Fed going to do? See, again, when everybody, all these traders who are in the gold market or dollar market, they see, oh, higher than expected inflation, the Fed's going to raise rates. So let's buy dollars and let's sell gold. Even if they extrapolated what that means, the Fed's going to raise rates, so the economy's going to slow. Maybe we're going to have a recession. Well, what's the Fed going to do then? Well, they're going to cut rates. They're going to print even more money. So the result of tightening now is easing later, except I don't think there's going to be a big gap now. I mean, I think the period between the first tightening and the first easing is going to be condensed given the fact that the economy is so highly leveraged. So to the extent that the Fed actually tries to fight inflation, they end up creating even more because the minute they try to fight it, they bring on a recession. And now they want to fight that and they fight that by creating more inflation. So once you understand the outcome, regardless of what you expect the Fed to do, you should be selling dollars and buying gold. In fact, more proof that inflation isn't a bonanza for corporate America because they can raise prices and recover the loss was provided by the producer price numbers that were released earlier this morning, which were actually worse than the consumer price numbers that were released yesterday. Again, just like with consumer prices, producer prices surprised the so-called experts By rising much more than expected, the consensus was for a gain of 0.6, which would have been an improvement over the 0.8% gain from May, which of course was also way ahead of what everybody had estimated. The consensus opinion for the June number went from a low of 0.5 to a high of 0.9, and we ended up at 1% even, exceeding the highest range estimate, and again, almost twice what had been expected. Look at the year-over-year number, which last month was 6.6%. This month, it came in at 7.3%. This is the biggest year-over-year gain in the producer price index in the history of this index, which actually only goes back to 2010. I'm not really sure what they were using before 2010. So this is a record high, but the record only dates back 11 years. But if you want to find a year where the consumer price index was up by 7.3% year-over-year, you have to go all the way back to 1982, So the tail end of the inflationary period of the 1970s to find something like that in the consumer price index. But again, of course, these numbers, as I said earlier, have been highly rigged to understate the rate to which prices are going up. But the more significant factor here is when you compare these increases to the consumer price index, even on a month over month basis, the number is stronger But it's bigger on year-over-year because the year-over-year increase in consumer prices was 5.4%. But producers saw their prices go up 7.3% or their costs. So there's a big delta there. Businesses are being hit with much bigger increases in their costs than what they're passing on to their customers in the form of higher prices, which is what I said earlier in the podcast Companies have been reluctant to pass on these higher costs, even though they're absorbing them. Well, I think their reluctance is going to change in the back half of the year as it becomes more and more apparent that these are permanent increases, not transitory. And so to maintain profitability, 
businesses are going to have to raise prices. In fact, even if you look at the core, the core number year over year is up 5.6% for producers. It's only up 4.5% for consumers. So even in the core, when you strip out food and energy, businesses are really eating these costs. Well, they're not going to eat them much longer. They have a difficult choice to make, right? They can keep absorbing the losses and watch their profits tank, or they can try to salvage their profits by increasing their prices. But the risk there is their profits tank even if they raise their prices, because when they raise their prices, they're not going to sell as much stuff because the customers don't have as much money to buy the stuff because wages are not rising as much as prices, especially if higher inflation, higher real prices causes consumers to reduce their real spending as they're spending more on necessities. They spend less on luxuries or discretionary items. Now people lose their jobs. And when people lose their jobs, they have no way of keeping pace with inflation because generally your unemployment benefits don't even come close to recovering all of your lost wages. So yes, some people will see higher wages, the ones that don't lose their jobs, but the ones that are put out of work by inflation will see their wages reduced to zero, and then they're going to be relying on government money. And where does the government get the money? It prints it. And so there's even more inflation driving prices even higher for those that still have jobs and making it more likely that some of the people who've managed to keep their jobs will lose them. So this is all bad news. And despite all this, though, despite this bad news for businesses that shows that their costs are rising faster than the prices they charge for the goods they're producing, stocks are all up. In fact, as I am recording this podcast, the S&P 500 is now in record territory. The Dow Jones and NASDAQ are up. They're not quite at record highs, but they're on the verge of record highs. So nobody cares. None of this is bad news. Nobody is worried about inflation. Nobody is worrying about the impact that inflation will exert on compressing margins and profits. Nobody is worried about the downturn in the economy that might result from higher prices or more unemployment. The one thing that is happening that's a bit different, though, than yesterday is that we're seeing weakness in the U.S. dollar. The dollar index has almost surrendered all of yesterday's gains, not quite. And gold has certainly recouped more than all of yesterday's losses. In fact, gold didn't lose much yesterday. It may have even been up a couple of bucks. I forget. But as I'm recording this now on Wednesday morning, gold's up almost $20, about $18.25. This is the highest we've been since bottoming out. Silver up better than 40 cents. 26.38 is the last price. So gold and silver reacting the way they should to worse than expected inflation news. But again, they're not really reacting the way they should. The direction is right. It's just that the size of the move is wrong. There should be a much bigger move up in the price of both gold and silver in the face of these horrific inflation numbers, both at the consumer and producer level, that show that what we are experiencing is not transitory and it's not good for stocks because their prices are rising faster than the prices they're charging their customers. It's bad news all around, but the market is ignoring it. In fact, look at what's happening to oil prices. As I speak, oil is off about 20 cents, but we're still above $75 a barrel. But more significantly was yesterday's close. The price of oil yesterday had its highest closing price of the year, which means it had its highest closing price of about seven years. We shrugged off that pullback. Oil did not make a new high price. The high for this move is 76.95, I think, just below 77. But the day that we had that print, we actually reversed and closed negative. So the close from yesterday despite not being the highest intraday price, was the highest closing price, which is a good sign that this bull market is continuing. Now, I guess it's not a good sign if you're a consumer who needs to buy oil, but it's a good sign if you're long oil, if you're a producer and you're selling oil. Uh, Oil is going up, and the fact that we just hit a new closing high 
is a positive for that market, but it's certainly a negative for the outlook that inflation is transitory because oil prices keep going up. They're the highest they've been. There is no sign in the producer prices or in the consumer prices that anything we're seeing is transitory. And there's certainly no sign in the oil market since it's just made a new high. In fact, it made a new high yesterday on the very day when everybody was so convinced that inflation wasn't a problem that they bought the dollar and they sold gold, even though oil was surging to a new high close, which is not only showing that we have an inflation problem now, but that the inflation problem is going to persist as companies that are now using energy as an ingredient, as an input in the production chain are now going to have to pass on those higher costs to their customers. And of course, their customers are also confronted with their own higher energy costs. All of this spells stagflation. And this is perfect environment for foreign stocks, for emerging markets, for gold. It's just that most people haven't put the pieces of this puzzle together yet. Well, I've already put them together. I've been describing this outcome for years, and now we're experiencing it. Most people, though, are still too clueless to understand it, but it makes perfect sense. The pieces of the puzzle are falling right into place. And because we anticipated all of this. We are prepared for it. It all makes sense. And if you're not prepared, again, I encourage everybody, load up on gold and silver. Give us a call at shiftgold.com or go to the website and get the phone number. Buy yourself some gold and silver before sleeping investors wake up to this reality. Get more money out of U.S. stocks. Sell into these record highs. Get rid of your overpriced U.S. stocks that are not going to be a good inflation hedge. Get rid of your U.S. bonds and all dollar-denominated debt and get into undervalued foreign stocks that pay good dividends that will be a good inflation hedge. Overweight resources and those companies that are really able to have the pricing power in an inflationary environment. You got to make sure your dividend income is coming from non-US dollar sources and make sure you really have a lot of exposure to the mining sector. We've got that in all of our strategies. So go to Europe Pacific Capital. The website is europac.com for Europe Pacific Capital and for Europe Pacific Asset Management. For those of you who are living outside the United States, contact us there epacfunds.com is the website. I don't really know how the market is going to completely play out in the aftermath of this inflation data. I mean, I'm recording this podcast very early in the trading day. The market actually just opened about 10, 15 minutes ago, and I'm completing the podcast. But I will have more to say on how the markets completely played out and how everything unfolded later on in the day and for the rest of the week when I do my next podcast, which as of now, I'm not planning to release until Saturday.